coming to you on a very cold day in Denver as the snow is about to move in. This is The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss with the Center for Western Priorities. And I'm Kate Gretzinger in Bluff, Utah. 2022 is the 100th anniversary of the Colorado River Compact, an agreement between seven Western states that determines how the river's water is split up. On the show today, we're talking to reporter Luke Runyon about a trip he took down the river last year to document how drought was affecting water users. His reporting also touched on negotiations going on right now to revise how Colorado River water is shared between states and tribes. Those negotiations started last year and will continue through 2026. Before we jump into that conversation, let's talk about some very good news. A federal judge has thrown out the offshore lease sale held by the Biden administration last year, invalidating all 1.7 million acres of oil and gas leases bought up by the industry. In case you don't remember, the Biden administration offered up 80 million acres in the Gulf of Mexico for lease last November, making it the largest lease sale in history. The judge ruled that the environmental review completed for the sale under the Trump administration was insufficient and flawed, which means the leases are no good. And while the Interior Department is likely to redo that environmental review, it is possible that it won't reinstate the leases. If this review is done correctly, it will show that the sale will produce a huge amount of carbon emissions over the next 30 to 40 years, which is, of course, at odds with the Biden administration's stated goal of reducing emissions by half by 2030. The ruling could also affect whether the administration moves forward with onshore lease sales planned for this year, especially in Wyoming and Colorado, since the environmental review's for those sales were also completed under the Trump administration using those same flawed environmental analyses. And in more oil and gas news, the Interior Department announced Monday that it will make $1.15 billion available to states to clean up their orphaned oil and gas wells. The money is part of a $4.7 million allocation in the infrastructure bill passed last year meant to address abandoned oil wells, which often spew methane straight into the atmosphere. These abandoned wells are a huge environmental hazard. It is great that the Biden administration is focused on cleaning them up. But this spending doesn't address the real problem, which is the insufficient bonding rates that oil and gas companies pay when they drill. If the federal government set realistic bonds for cleaning up oil and gas wells, taxpayers wouldn't have to fund this very expensive cleanup. Today we're joined by Luke Runyon, a former radio reporter for KUNC in Greeley, Colorado. Luke covered water issues for the station, and he went on a road trip last year to document the effects drought is having on the Colorado River. He's going to tell us about that trip and what he learned from following the 1,400-mile river from its beginning to its end. So as our listeners likely know, the Colorado River is one of the most important rivers in the United States. Some 40 million people rely on it for survival, as well as a countless number of cattle. But an ongoing mega drought is putting a major strain on the river. On top of that, the states that split the river's water are renegotiating their agreements right now. Luke, can you start there and explain how those talks work and why they're happening now? Sure. So the Colorado River's government structure, it's not like there's one person or agency or commission that's in charge of managing the river. Instead, you get this sort of collaborative governance model that makes all of the decisions on the Colorado River. And the basin is made up of seven U.S. states, 
Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, New Mexico in the upper basin, Nevada, Arizona, California in the lower basin. The country of Mexico relies on the river. You also have 30 federally recognized tribes in the basin. And with all of those entities coming together, that's how you manage this river. And it gets done through uh, agreements like the 1922 Colorado River Compact and all of the other agreements that have kind of been built on that foundational document um, over the last 100 years. And currently, the river basin is dealing with a scarcity problem. That hasn't been the case for the entire time that the river has been around, but for the last 20 years, more than 20 years now, uh, there's been a water supply problem where the demands are outstripping the supply and all of the people who are relying on the river are having to decide how do we go about living with less, who has to take cuts, when and why, and under what condition, um, and how do we learn how to, how to live with a smaller river um, because of climate change. So why then, with that as the backdrop, do you decide to pick up and travel the whole length of the river rather than just stay in northern Colorado or focus on, on the state where you were based? Why, why take this reporting trip all the way down to the Delta? Well, there's one thing that's kind of nice about reporting on rivers is that they are kind of this linear shape. They follow a line they start in one place and they end in another and they travel this long distance. And narratively, it works really well to tell a story along a line. And um, we knew that there was going to be this news event last summer, in the summer of 2021. Um, we had months in advance notice that there was going to be this first ever federal shortage declaration on the Colorado River in August. And leading up to that event, we knew that we wanted to dig in deeper and learn more about not just the declaration itself, which was pretty straightforward, but get to know the people who are going to be affected by that decision. And my mind immediately went to, all right, well, where do we have to start? Where do we have to end and who do we have to meet along the way? And started plotting out this reporting trip to, to get to know those more human stories that can get lost when you get so involved in the bureaucracy and the governance. You know, those are important stories, but I really gravitate towards the kind of the more human element. You know, how are people on the ground being affected by water scarcity in the Colorado River Basin? What does that look like? Um, and so that was really my goal in, in plotting out that reporting trip. Will you tell us a, just a tiny bit more about what that uh, shortage declaration meant? Like what happened? Sure. So this was a declaration that was uh, conceptualized in an agreement that was passed by the the basin's leaders in 2007. Uh, they're called the 2007 Interim Guidelines, not the sexiest title for an agreement. Um, <laughs> but it contemplated this scenario where the uh, levels at Lake Mead, which is the nation's largest reservoir, uh, 
Hoover Dam creates it down on the Nevada, Arizona border, that as Lake Mead drops, you have these tiers within it that trigger certain cutbacks among water users. And Lake Mead had never been this low before to trigger this first ever shortage level. Um, it had kind of fluctuated and had come very close to hitting that level, but it had never been to the point where it was actually that low. Um, and you can see that in, in models that the, the federal government runs, we could anticipate that it was coming because you can see, you know, how much water is leaving the reservoir, how much is coming in, and you can kind of project out how, um, what its level is going to be in the next few months. And so people, people anticipated that this was coming. It wasn't a surprise, um, but it gave reporters and journalists an opportunity to spend quite a bit of time um, going out into the field and learning more ahead of this, you know, big news event that was coming. Cool. And the cuts themselves mean like less people are getting water, right? Like just across the board, everyone yes. kind of takes a cut. Yeah. The cutbacks triggered by the, the shortage declaration are hitting uh, Nevada, Mexico, and Arizona. And Arizona is taking the steepest cutbacks. And that's kind of a a feature of the way that agreements have been made in the in the basin in the past that Arizona is kind of in the in the most vulnerable position for taking water cutbacks on the Colorado River. Okay, cool. And that happened after your trip, so we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, right? Yeah, that that came down in mid-August and I was out in the field in mid-June. So a couple okay. months ahead. Cool. So you were talking to these folks right before they kind of got hit. So um, let's turn to your story. And you started your trip at a cattle ranch in western Colorado, probably in the spring or early summer of last year, right? Yeah, this would have been in June of last year. Um, I basically did the whole reporting trip in a matter of 10 days. And because oh, wow. I live, live in the front range of Colorado, I left my home in Fort Collins and drove to Rifle and, and met up with uh, a couple ranchers in the Rifle area and, and just talking about drought impacts on the ground. You know, what what has it meant to be uh, a rancher in one of the driest years that the, the West has ever seen? Hmm. Okay, let's play a clip really quick. The river starts on Colorado's western slope, where father and son Wayne and Brackett Pollard run cattle. Up on a sagebrush-covered hillside, we look down into the Rifle Valley, where the men use the river's water to grow hay. Typically, this would be high water, and it hasn't really come up at all. So take us behind the scenes and tell us about what you learned at the ranch and, and also why you decided to start on a cattle ranch to tell this story. Sure. I learned just how dire the water situation is if you don't have a secure supply. Um, these, this is a, a father and son, Wayne and Brackett Pollard, who they run cattle, uh, in the, in the rifle area in co Western Colorado. And, you know, they have ditches that deliver water to their particular operation, uh, but not the entirety of it. They still rely a lot on pasture land for a lot of their cattle. They grow some hay, which they can supplement their feeding, but really they're reliant on sending their cattle onto private and public land in order to fatten them up, to, to sell them off. 
and uh, that is really hard when the the pasture is suffering from from drought. There's just not enough feed for their their cattle to eat, and that's kind of a a direct result of the dry conditions. Um, and so their operation was being constricted by the lack of feed for their cattle. They were most likely going to be having to sell quite a few cattle just because they couldn't afford to feed them. Um, they couldn't buy enough hay and there wasn't enough pasture to feed all of their animals. Um, and they, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about how this is not just an issue for them, but we're Westwide, um, that this is an issue that ranching families across the West are having to deal with as the region heats up and dries out, um, that there's just not enough feed to support the, the cattle herds that are out there. Um, and I wanted to talk to them primarily because agriculture plays such an outsized role in the Colorado River Basin uh, as a whole, you know, not necessarily ranching, but, you know, crop growing, uh, cattle feed operations. I mean, use a, a lot of water, about 75 to 80% of the water in the Colorado River Basin goes towards agriculture. And starting with ag seems to only make uh, good sense when you're talking about water scarcity because those are the people who are going to be feeling it the most intensely right away. When we talk about po politics in general, we hear a lot about the urban-rural divide being increasingly a progressive conservative divide. But then when you're talking to cattle ranchers who are on the front lines of the impacts of climate change, uh, is there a recognition there when it comes to that these are the industries that are being impacted by climate change first by, by virtue of, of this drought and aridification? I mean, when I talk to people in agriculture, on the whole, everyone says something has changed. <laughs> now, the cause of what's driving those changes varies. Um, you know, I, I, we didn't necessarily talk too deeply about greenhouse gas emissions when I was meeting with ranchers, um, but they they uh, acknowledge that the weather and the drying out and the heating up exists, uh, that, you know, climate change, maybe they wouldn't use that terminology, but that the systems, the ecology that they know as a multi-generational ranch family has changed. And uh, they don't necessarily know when it's going to go back um, if, the, if the current trends continue. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that they, they would definitely tell you that ex it exists. The causes would range across the board. Hmm. And I suppose the most, the most visible sign of how ongoing this drought is, is Lake Powell, where you, you headed next, where literally we are seeing parts of Glen Canyon that have not been seen in 50, 60 years uh, coming back uh, because the, the water levels are so low. Um, well, you, you hung out with some boaters there. Let's go ahead and listen to, to that clip, and then I, we'll, we'll talk about it. 
About 250 miles downstream, the river becomes a massive reservoir, Lake Powell, where Sherry Fascinelli and husband Randy Redford are vacationing. The reservoir fills Glen Canyon, a maze of red rock on the Colorado Plateau. The lake is headed toward its lowest point since it was built. Fascinelli veers their speedboat into a side canyon. You know, places where you've boated for 20 years and gone flying over, all of a sudden now there's big islands and rocks. So Luke, you actually stopped in Bluff and hung out with me on your way down to Lake Powell. And I remember that you were really excited to go out on the lake. And I'm actually, I want to hear how it was. Like, how what was the vibe like? Were people having fun, carefree, or were they kind of freaking out a little bit? I don't know if you remember this, but this was during that first June heat wave that hit the the Southwest. And it was just, it was brutally hot, mm-hmm. like 110 degrees, Wow! you know, in the middle of the afternoon, it actually got down into 120 degrees by the end of this trip. And so you had people just kind of baking in the sun um, at Lake Powell. And it was a weird time because this is right around when there was kind of a successive uh, boat ramp closure thing that was going on at Lake Powell over last summer where the levels of the lake kept dropping. And as they got lower, there were certain boat ramps that had to close because they just didn't have the water for them to safely launch boats into the lake. And if you've never been to Lake Powell, it's like a boater's paradise. Like people love this place for motorized boating um, and come from all over to do it, have these really lavish houseboats and stay out there for weeks on end. And the vibe was way off because uh, people realized that this resource that they've gotten really used to and have spent a lot of time getting to know all of the nooks and crannies in Lake Powell was changing right in front of their eyes Um, and getting to a level that no one has seen before since Glen Canyon Dam was built. Um, And so it was just, it was kind of a strange time to be there because it was so intensely hot and it was dropping really rapidly to the point where even the, you know, the National Park Service, which runs a lot of the, uh, the amenities there, was kind of having to scramble to close down boat ramps. It just felt kind of chaotic. Um, and now the, the lake is, appro- you know, it's already at a historic low and it's going to keep dropping until the spring. I'm, I'm ex- you know, curious to go back and see what Lake Powell looks like now as compared to last summer, because I'm sure it looks, the difference is even more stark now that it's, you know, several dozen feet lower than it is than it was last summer. Wow. Well, I'm curious, were people sort of <laughs> compared to the cattle ranchers, were they sort of facing that this, that Lake Powell might be like on the decline and they might need to be finding new places or like the folks that you went out with, um, were they saying they were going to come back next year? Yes, if they can. And that's the thing. It's like with Lake Powell, you have um, these sort of hard drop-offs for these boat ramps. So, you know, some of these boat ramps are built on the side of cliffs. And if the water levels get so low, 
you can't launch a boat off of a, a cliff <laughs> and the, <laughs> the water levels really determine what kind of recreation you can have at Lake Powell, how accessible it is because it's in this deep canyon. Um, and the couple that I interviewed, they own a houseboat on Lake Powell. They go there multiple times a year, probably three or four times every summer and spend some time on their houseboat. And the, the boat ramp that they launched from was the last one remaining open <laughs> at Lake Powell uh, by the end of last summer. And so as the recreation season kicks up this year, there'll be a lot of questions about what, what kind of recreation is going to be possible at Lake Powell this year. Where can you actually launch a boat depending on, on what the runoff into the lake looks like? Um, so it really depends on, you know, everything in the Colorado River always comes back to the snowpack in the Rocky Mountains. And I think this year in particular, recreation at Lake Powell depends really heavily on how good of a snow year uh, the mountains in Wyoming and Colorado have this year. Hmm. So Nate Rott with NPR was also just out there recently and, and turned some stories with folks now talking publicly about the possibility of not refilling Lake Powell, that there is simply not enough water to supply both Lake Mead and Lake Powell. And does it feel like that we're at a point where folks are legitimately thinking about the possibility of basically decommissioning Glen Canyon Dam, letting the canyon return and just using Lake Mead as the, the major reservoir on the Colorado? Yeah, this has been a long time hope and dream of a lot of environmental groups in the West who kind of see the dam as this symbol of how excessive the West's water um, demands really are. Now, you know, I, I can see an argument to be made that the, the Overton window of what possibilities in the basin like what, what's possible in the basin right now, I think that window is expanding right. to where... It, it wasn't even something some people were talking about even two years ago. Right, yeah. Two or three years ago, I think it, it was very easily dismissed. It wouldn't have been on NPR. Some... <laughs> people were talking about it, but they weren't on NPR. Yeah, but but it would, right, would not have made it onto, yeah. onto All Things Considered, sure. Yeah, it was. it was dismissed as kind of a... A fun thought experiment, but not something that people were really taking seriously. And I think now when you have the level of the lake that's approaching the level where hydropower is threatened, that's when people can start thinking, oh, what if Glen Canyon Dam can't produce hydropower? What What's if the point it, at that point? What if it gets so low that we actually can't pass water through the dam into Grand Canyon? Then I think you start hearing the discussion change of, well, maybe we should make some sort of contingency plan. Maybe we should have some other sort of spillway through the canyon to get water um, if it ever dropped below the intake of Glen Canyon Dam. That's sort of the discussion that I'm hearing now is not necessarily people saying, all right, we need to make a plan to uh, decommission the dam, but just maybe we should be thinking about this as a possibility 
And that assumption that we had in the past that Lake Powell is forever going to be there in its, you know, in, in its very stable state, maybe we can't uh, assume that anymore. So next, you went to Vegas, where you explored the city's water conservation policies, um, which are extreme, extremely good. Um, So we're going to play a clip of that real quick. Further downstream in a Las Vegas gated community, the Colorado River's water spurts out of a sprinkler and onto manicured grass, catching the eye of Devin Choltko, water waste investigator. And there's too much water leaving the property at the moment. So we're going to get out of the car, throw our lights on and uh, document the spray and flow violation is what we call it. So I know Vegas has a reputation for being good at water conservation, but I don't think I realized until I heard your story that they actually have enforcement agents roaming around, kind of like hall monitors and like filing reports, like violations. Um, and I'm I'm curious, were you surprised by like how far they're going to save water in Las Vegas? I was and continue to be surprised by it. And I think it's because in the popular culture, Las Vegas is often trotted out as this city that is so excessive with its water use and people think of all of the fountains up and down the strip and all of the, um, yeah, it's just, it's kind of a city of excess in a lot of different ways. But I think when it comes to water, that doesn't necessarily hold up the, the city and the surrounding metro area has done a lot. I would say more than any other major metropolitan area in the Colorado River Basin to rein in its water use in order to keep growing. And, uh, you know, Vegas now has had a really aggressive lawn buyback program. Um, They just recently took a step further to get the state to outlaw certain kinds of ornamental grass, which is going to be rolling out in the next couple of years. Um, They offer a lot of incentives for people to use less water. They have these roving water cops, essentially, that go out and write people tickets for overwatering their their landscaping. Um, I just recently saw that Las Vegas is going to be looking at maybe even um, proposing no new golf courses that use Colorado River water, uh, no new evaporative cooling in the valley. So really, these are <laughs> they're small drops in the bucket in the whole overall the basin's water use. Um, but they send a really important message to other cities in the basin that as supplies keep shrinking, you guys are going to have to start thinking about these kinds of things too. Hmm. That the, that Vegas, even though, yes, it's in the middle of the Mojave Desert, it is incredibly dry there. Uh, I think the message that the Southern Nevada Water Authority is putting out there is Phoenix, Denver, Salt Lake City, Albuquerque, Los Angeles, these are all things that you're going to have to be thinking about very soon as supplies keep shrinking. So don't think, so don't think that we're so unique. <laughs> as someone who grew up in Tucson, the idea of no new swamp cooling to me is just wild. Cause I certainly don't think of that as being 
terribly wasteful to begin with when it comes to water because you're basically just getting a sponge wet and letting letting it sit there. Anyway. (laughs) So you visited the Fort Yuma Kachan Indian Tribes Reservation in southwest Arizona near the river's end for the final segment of your story. Let's play a clip from that. Not far upstream, water is drawn off to serve customers in Los Angeles and Phoenix and to irrigate crops, including local ones, says tribal council member Charles Escalani. So that's why I always tease everybody when they're from back east. I'm like, when you're eating a salad in December, thank us, because that's where it's coming from. So how were their farms doing at that point? Were they already getting hit by any water cuts? Um or and and I guess I'm curious. I know a lot of tribes have senior water rights, so I'm curious what that meant going forward for them. This particular tribe wasn't feeling shortage right away, and that's because they have pretty secure water rights. And this is sort of this gets into like the paradox of the basin, where the whole river might feel like it's quickly approaching a crisis, but if you zoom in on any particular area, like the farm fields in the Yuma area, you'd never really know that there was a water crisis going on because it looks like business as usual. Um, And, you know, part of that is because of this priority system that we have that manages water in the West. And so if you're looking at farm fields in central Arizona, where the central Arizona project, this massive canal transports water, those farmers actually are feeling the impacts from this shortage declaration. They're having to make decisions on their operations, um, whether or not they switch back to groundwater pumping or fallow fields. Um, That's really where that's playing out. And that's simply because the Central Arizona Project's priority in the whole river system is lower than that of the farms in in the Yuma, Arizona area. Hmm. Um, And Sorry, is that because they like bought their land more recently um, or why is it or is is the whole Central Arizona project just like junior to like any tribes? Yeah, the Central Arizona project was one of the last big projects to be built on the Colorado River. And to get it built, Arizona agreed to kind of be one of the more junior users on the river. Um, and said that California had the the senior priority in the lower basin. Um, And that was to get that project over the finish line and actually get it built. And now that there's not enough water to go around, they're feeling that junior status um, Hmm. and not being, not being able to get their full water supply every year. Um, And that's really just kind of the brutal nature of prior appropriation as a, as a management system is that Hmm. the junior users get fully cut off before the more senior users feel those cutbacks. Interesting. So so at the Yuma Kachan farm, I know you talked to them about the negotiations a little bit. So I'm curious if they were worried about their water security going away in some fashion. I think the discussion that you hear from a lot of tribes right now is not necessarily a concern that their water supplies, their current water supplies are going to be cut off. Um, a lot of tribes, because of their treaties with the federal government, um, if they have their water rights quantified and they're already putting it to use. Those supplies are very senior. They're not under threat of being taken away. If anything, the 
tribes are more concerned about future policies. And for, you know, the century that we've been, you know, creating legal agreements around the Colorado River, tribes were not really a part of that process. And increasingly, you're hearing a call for the next iteration of managing guidelines from uh, from the federal government and from the states to include tribes in a meaningful way and hear their perspectives and have an equal seat at the negotiating table. Um, that's really, I think, where the concern is right now is how do you create that process that allow tribes to be meaningfully involved, not just a sort of rubber stamp at the end saying, yes, tribes approve this, but actually have a role in crafting those policies and um, feeling like they're, they're being heard. Uh, you know, there, there are these sort of tribal consultation processes in place, but I think a lot of tribes feel like they're inadequate, that they don't, um, they don't and haven't allowed tribes to be involved. And, uh, and so that's a discussion that's going on right now in the basin is how do you create those processes to allow for that? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. That'll be interesting because there are a lot of tribes in the Colorado yeah. River Basin. And they, all ha- and they all have different interests and different geographies and different economies, mm-hmm. um, which make it really difficult to, to kind of generalize about um, what tribes want. Sure. Luke, getting back to the fundamental question here that we started with, the Colorado River Compact, the terms that govern what happened during a drought, that 2007 agreement, I believe, that you mentioned, those expire in 2026. So having made this reporting trip, do you think there is room to nibble around the edges of that, use that as a framework for what becomes a long-term solution? Or if this is truly an aridification of the West, a long-term drying out, are states going to have to revisit the basic assumptions that went into the Colorado River Compact in 1922? Yeah, and this is kind of a a fundamental tension on the river is this, you know, all of the people who who are leading these discussions favor an incremental approach. This is what's worked for them in the past, this sort of trimming around the edges, uh, tr- coming to an agreements that they feel like are politically agreeable in their respective states. Um, but don't necessarily get to the fundamental supply-demand imbalance that the river has. And I think for a long time, the discussions that were had were these kind of insular, behind-closed-doors, you know, small network of people that were negotiating these agreements. As we've gotten more into a full-fledged crisis, you have this new uh, group of people who are calling for more radical changes to how the river is managed and the the legal agreements that are used to manage it. Um, I think it would be very difficult to completely reopen the Colorado River Compact, but I think that there are workarounds that people are talking about to 
to get to some of those more radical changes um, while keeping some of the foundational agreements that are in place right now. What would those workarounds potentially look like? How how major can you get without reopening the compact? Well, you could get people agreeing to limits on their use. And this is a big topic of discussion right now because the last set of agreements, the drought contingency plans, uh, is particularly in, in the lower basin, and now this new agreement that's kind of an, an overlay to that called the 500 plus plan, it's really lower basin leaders saying, we need to rein in our use. Now, I could see a, a companion sort of agreement in the in the upper basin, where eventually the upper basin might say, all right, we're going to put a cap on no no more new uses of Colorado River water. That could That's something that could be on the table in those negotiations. Just an example. Um, you know, really, there's this, this dynamic between the two basins where someone feels like they're giving up something so someone else can can have something else. And really, it just needs to be this kind of whole basin approach where everyone says, we all agree that we can't uh, we can't cr- create new demands on this river. We have to learn how to live with less. Do you think it's likely that the states involved in these negotiations will agree to use less water? Like I know, at least in my experience, Utah is still saying they're going to use more water. <laughs> how much do you think the positions of, uh, are going to shift of where from where people started to where the, it ends? It's hard to say. I mean, like in the lower basin, they have agreed to take less. Um, and that's huge um, because for, you know, decades and decades, none of the discussion in the Colorado River Basin was about using less water. If anything, it was about who's going to keep using more, <laughs> who gets to build the, who gets to build the new flashy project. Mm. And up until very recently, you had this shift in how people were thinking about the, the Colorado River. You know, is it, a, is it a system that we can keep drawing more and more and more on? And, uh, and I think you're not seeing that same discussion happening. If anything, it's shifted. And now everyone realizes that we've overbuilt it to an overmanaged system. And now the discussion is about who uses less. And Arizona and Nevada and Mexico are already uh, taking less water from the Colorado River. And if Lake Mead keeps dropping, California will join in in that as well. Um, And when you talk to leaders in the upper basin, they say, you know, we're taking shortages every year because of the the way that um, kind of water rights are managed in upper basin states. Um, But really the discussion uh between the two basins is you know we want to see more from lower basin talking to the upper basin saying we want to see more uh effort to conserve from the upper basin even though they have the legal entitlement to keep using more water i think uh the discussion and kind of the charge from the lower basin to the upper basin is to kind of take in some of that conservation ethic as well Hmm. Mm -hmm. and leave some water for them We'll see if it actually happens. So, Luke, in August, you stepped away from daily journalism to pursue a fellowship at the University of Colorado's Center for Environmental Journalism. 
Um, and you're about halfway through the academic year. So what have you been working on? And do you think you'll come back to covering the Colorado River at some point? Yeah, I've been doing this. Uh, it's called the Ted Scripps Fellowship at the University of Colorado. And it's uh, specifically set up for environmental journalists. And uh, I've been auditing classes at the university, which has been a really lovely change of pace from daily reporting, which can be kind of a uh, an exhausting <laughs> uh, job, you know, you're churning out stories every day. Um, it's been really nice to just kind of be able to, to take courses and slow down a little bit and unplug a little bit more um, than I had been when I was a, a daily beat reporter. Hmm. Um, and, I, you know, slowly starting to work on a new reporting project focused on the 100-year anniversary of the Colorado River Compact, which is this year, and looking at trying not to be so doom and gloom about the whole situation, which is really easy to do when you, you start looking at it as this large, complex problem, but really looking at more solutions-focused, hmm. giving people uh, an insight into some of the tools that people are thinking about in order to manage water scarcity in the West um, and trying not to be so pessimistic about, about the whole situation. Uh, hopefully when people listen to, to what I'm producing at the end, it'll be, oh, we have some ways to get out of this and we just have to put the resources and time and, and people behind them in order to make them happen. Awesome. And it'll be well ahead of the deadline for completing the negotiations. So <laughs> Maybe it'll actually help. <laughs> That's, the goal. That's right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was a great conversation, um, and we really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Well, we brought you some pretty good news at the top of the show, but here's a little more. The world's largest wildlife crossing is under construction in California. It's long overdue because the 101 freeway in Los Angeles cuts through the 157,000-acre Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area. The new Wallace-Annenberg Wildlife Crossing will let mountain lions easily cross eight lanes of traffic, helping ensure genetic diversity for the population in Southern California. Now, what's really cool is the scale of this bridge. It's nearly one acre in size. It'll have native plants to attract pollinators, It'll be insulated to quiet the roar of the freeway below. It'll be made of matte materials that deflect headlights. So connectivity like this is incredibly important for biodiversity, which is why it is great that the federal infrastructure bill included $340 million for building more crossings like this. But consider that this one crossing in California comes with an $87 million price tag, so that $340 million nationwide is just a small start. Ooh, that's a lot of money. Well, that's it for this episode. Let us know what you think about the podcast or leave a review wherever you're listening right now. You can also send us an email with any suggestions to podcast at westernpriorities.org. I'm Kate Gretzinger. I'm Aaron Weiss. On behalf of the whole team at the Center for Western Priorities, thanks again to Luke Runyon for joining us, and thank you for listening to The Landscape. <laughs> <laughs>